I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, from China and the UK, novelist, memoirist, and filmmaker Zhao Lu Guo. Her 2017 memoir, Nine Continents, traces her life from a poor Chinese fishing village to Beijing and then England. When Lu Guo was born in southern China in 1973, her parents gave her to a peasant couple to be raised in the mountains. But two years later, poor and malnourished, she was taken to her paternal grandparents, who lived in the fishing village of Xitang. This is where her memories begin, but they're harsh and desolate. As she says, years later, after I had left the village, I felt that Xitang had killed all the tenderness in my heart. Xiaolu Guo only met her parents when she was seven, when they came to take her to live with them in an industrial town where they were working, her mother in a factory, and her father as a government artist. Plus, she discovered a slightly older brother whom her parents hadn't given away. This wasn't exactly a happy environment either. Mostly, Xiaolu remembers being hungry. But she made a warm connection with her father, who would give her books and later encouraged her to study film in Beijing. While scarcely in her teens, though, she was sexually abused by someone he worked with. No one ever knew. And while she's written about fictional girls who are raped, in her new memoir, she goes into detail about her own experience, naming the perpetrator. When Lu Guo was almost 20, she won a place, one of half a dozen or so, out of 7,000, at the Beijing Film Academy. It marked a big change in her life, not only an immersion in Western cinema, but an introduction to the world of underground performance artists in the Chinese avant-garde of the 1990s and turn of the millennium. During this time, Lu Guo was writing poetry and stories, as well as making experimental films and writing scripts for Chinese television soap operas. After almost 10 years in Beijing, she won a scholarship to study film in England. Lu Guo is impressively productive. In addition to her many books in Chinese, she tackled the challenge of learning a new language by publishing a novel in English called A Concise Chinese-English Dictionary for Lovers. It was shortlisted for Britain's Orange Prize and translated into two dozen languages. She followed it with UFO in Her Eyes, which she also made into a movie. In fact, her films have been screened at festivals around the world, winning international prizes. In 2013, Zhao Guo was named one of Granta Magazine's Best of Young British Novelists. Her most recent fiction is A Lover's Discourse. Last fall, she published a memoir called Radical, A Life of My Own. But when we spoke in 2018, we talked about her earlier book, Nine Continents, subtitled A Memoir in and Out of China. Following our conversation, it won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. The judges described it as an enthralling, elegant book. Xiaolu Guo lives in London, England, and that's where she was when we spoke. Just a note, there will be some discussion of suicide. Your memoir, Nine Continents, begins with a passage from a 16th century legend, The Journey to the West, and it tells the story of a medieval monk who sets out to find a sacred Buddhist text. What makes The Journey to the West a good companion for your own story? I guess it's a kind of early years inspiration. You know, every Chinese child would know that story too well. And the monkey, the tricky monkey, accompanied his master to, to India for the Buddhist sutras. So I think for me was kind of everlasting inspiration and a kind of fairy tale, uh, even when I grew up. So it kind of served that purpose for this book. What did the fairy tale mean to you? I mean, when, when you first heard it, what was its significance? 
I guess I think in the original, you know, Chinese text, the monkey's journey to the west or journey to the west, Xiuji, it offers this kind of strange landscape, especially in the west of China, when you know the the, the whole team, the pilgrim, they they pass through the, the volcano mountains, Gobi Desert, dangerous rivers and seas, you know, fighting with all the monsters, and also seeing beautiful landscape, beautiful kind of adventures on their on their path. I think it give us not only children but the grown ups a kind of fascinating mystery about, you know, beyond your province or beyond your own little hometown. Since we Chinese at that time we traveled so little within our country, you know, we barely moved out from our province. Maybe now it's different, but I think at that time in the seventies, eighties, even nineties for Chinese, you know, it offers such a huge imagination. Your your own story is a journey as well. I mean, beginning with a family that wasn't your own, and until you were two, you were raised by a peasant couple in the mountains of East China. What were you told about that time of your life? Very little. I think my story, you know, as a as a Chinese, I think it's typical somehow as a young Chinese woman, you know, grew up in that way. You know, in the beginning was kind of not an important being because as a baby girl, you know, you were not somehow desired by, by your parents. So so I just grew up with this family, which they supposed adopted me because they didn't have their own children. And I think memory is always, you know, it's always about reconstruction, reshaping, try to find the, the con- you know, con- continuity of, of your life. So I always thought about mountains, you know, those skinny goats on the very barren mountains with with a barren couple who only had, you know, a few potatoes at home, you know, and then there's a skinny little girl, you know, kind of dying and hunger. I think really I could never know what, what really happened in the early years. Because uh, they you weren't doing well with them, and, and so they they gave you to your grandparents. Exactly. So from about the age of two to seven, you lived with your paternal grandparents in this fishing village called Shitang on China's southeast coast. What are your earliest memories of that time? Yeah, the village of Shitang in the near East China coast was, um, I guess for me, it was this kind of eternal fishing village life connected to the very windy, salty sea and uh, also lots of death because of shipwreck and the typhoon season. I remember at that time we near we lived near this coffin shop, village coffin shop. And there's a this is the only coffin shop in, in the village which was always very busy <laughs> because all the husband died, the fisherman died on the sea and then the, the widows and the family would be, you know, queuing in front of coffin shop ordering the coffins and then all, you know, argue about price and also talk about, you know, which color they should paint because they always wanted the red, but which type of red, you know, dark red or brown red, you know, or, and in front of the coffin shop, all these paper flowers they were trying to make. And I always found that fascinating. I mean, I didn't feel kind of misery about the idea of death. I guess it was like everyday event. And involved with the practical matters, you know, have to arrange for someone who died. Your grandfather uh, was, as you describe him, a bitter, failed fisherman. He was born in 1905. He died when you were still a very young girl. What was he like? Yes, I think the the actual grandfather of my life, you know, I really don't know much things. My family barely mentioned him. But the, in my memory, which is a narrative, you know, memory is always kind of a narrative reconstruction. He was typical old-fashioned Chinese peasant, which means never talked, never really wanted to communicate with anyone in the house or outside of house. Uh, you know, quite moody, grumpy. Um, I think, you know, he also has a stoic, very stoic manner, which was very scary for for for, for a young child like me. And also I remembered his violence against my grandmother, which also was very common in that kind of village. And I remembered all that, you know, the details of how he was kind of complained about his food, his noodle, it wasn't good. And then, you know, 
curse my grandma or that. Um, but I don't think I was, you know, I, I, I didn't hate him or treat him as an enemy. I think he was like the shadow which casted, you know, every single object in the house, you know, whenever there's a light or there's a sun and he he's a shadowy side. And my grandmother was a kind of you know, non-shadowy side, although she was also quite shadowy in that house and outside the house too. Your grandfather committed suicide when you were just five years old, and, and you, you say you felt a sense of shame and rage, and you, you could feel his presence even after his death. In hindsight, do you understand what might have driven him to take his own life? Yeah, I thought, um, I always thought uh, it was a poverty and a kind of sense of uh, hopelessness as a fisherman or as an old peasant sort of just surrender or resign from life or from reality, which is interesting because, you know, men did that, you know, old-fashioned men did that, like my grandfather. Yet my grandmother, you know, a woman actually suffered much more or her voice was never heard, you know, and her life was even much worse than my grandfather's life, but she didn't kill herself. And it's kind of, you know, from intellectual point of view, it's interesting. You look at men and women, how they view their life or how they value their life. You know, at that time, I think my grandmother, you know, that kind of women just take their life just as it is. Um, they they don't think that they should deserve better life. Yet my grandfather must think he should have better life, but he didn't. And it was like a bitter anger against his own fate or or you know he chose to to kill himself i i think it's interesting how that event shaped my vision about hardship of life because i don't think it's very you know it's it's a common phenomenon in the chinese countryside at that time you know people just kill themselves because of hopelessness or poverty I think it's it's not that usual. It's different from, you know, say during the Cultural Revolution time, lots of intellectuals or professors, you know, they they took their life by themselves. They because intellectuals during the Cultural Revolution they they, they have this strong dignity and when they lost their dignity, you know, they decide to die. But I'm saying, you know, kind of my grandparents that generation Normally, they would just live on, even though they might suffer from such extreme poverty. But in my grandfather's case, I, I, I don't really know why he decided he couldn't live on, you know, whether it was a trigger. You know, and I think maybe alcohol, alcoholism also contribute to that. Alcoholism, yeah. Yeah. When you, you say your grandmother had it worse, I mean, she was... A humble, self-effacing person, and and in your memoir, she stands out for her, for her kindness and 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 how she looked after you. Uh, can you tell me a bit about her? Yes, you know she was child bride, uh, married to my grandpa, grandfather, for very little things. You know they they exchange some food and rice and yams. You know that's the value of her marriage. And then she walked with her own father to my grandfather's village. Uh, for a few days, she walked and arrived to that house, and that was just her life. You know, another type of poverty, but, you know, dominated by different men, which was my grandfather. But I think it, she's a case of this feudal China, historical China, you know, how women's fate is so bounded to its traditional role. And also her, you know, because it's Buddhism, in China, and she could find her sort of her only hope or solace in life. So I always wrote about her as a character, which is kind of is a huge contrast to my mother's generation to my generation. Because even her feet were bound. I mean, she's yeah. from from that time. Yeah, I mean, her life is, you know, I always say it's kind of historical manifestation, you know, bound feet. Um, hunchbacked, illiterate, yet extremely humble, self-effacing, no complaint. You know. She swallowed everything she 
suffered, you know. She swallowed all the injustice without any complaint. And um, I think lots and lots of women at that time, you know, lived like that. You say that your grandmother loved you, although you didn't really understand what love was then, but that did seem to be the first kind of real love that you knew. Looking back, how do you, how do you see that? I still don't understand what is love. I mean, sometimes I think it's such um, interesting, strange, nearly commercialized concept, love, because... One can have love without any mani manifestation, but I guess in the West, that's not love. You know, you have to express and dedicate, help others to show you do love them or do something. But at that time, in my life, in my early life, I thought my grandmother must have loved me because she, she cared. She cared about me, perhaps more than herself or more than anyone. But then, you know, still there's very little man manifestation. And in my book, I made sure I, I wrote that detail about, you know, because we live in a semi-tropical area in China, very hot, always, you know, in monsoon, kind of sweaty, that kind of weather. And a ice stick, you know, we don't have, we didn't have ice cream at that time, but ice stick, like sugar, the ice cube, uh, it was like luxury, you know, thing in the summertime. And I really remember you know, so vividly she tried to buy ice stick and then uh, because it, the, there's no shops for that. So it was always a man, you know, carrying some kind of ice box and with those sugary ice in his ice box. And he would carry those baskets on his uh, bamboo pole, you know, walking around the whole village to sell that. And my if my grandmother catch, you know, caught him, she would buy, you know, one. But then I wasn't there, you know, all the time. I, w I would be always, you know, playing, running around the streets, er you know, everywhere with other kids. So she would take time to find me. By the time she found me, the ice cube melted completely in her very dirty napkin. And that's what, you know, after 30-something and nearly 40 years, I was still in tears because it's such an effort. And she, you know, I remember my grandmother were would be also was in tears at that time because she she hated the fact when she found me the ice stick was melted because that's very expensive so it's you know it's so emotional for her too but it's such a vivid image of uh, her devotion to you and uh, i can see why it would move you even now to 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 think about thank you <laughs> When you were almost seven, your parents came to take you from your grandmother's home in Shitong, uh, to take you back with them to the industrial town of Wenling. What was it like to live in an urban communist compound after life in this small fishing village? My my parents were very, you know, really quite devoted, you know, so-called, you know, kind of hardcore, you know, communist believer. My father, especially my father, he joined the Communist Party when he was 17. That was, you know, the legal age to join the Communist Party. So he was living in this company that we, we shared. I think thousands of people there, most of the residents inside the company were factory workers and government workers. And I remember you walk into the company yard, we would have two guards, or actually soldiers with guns. They would salute to you, even though you were just a child. But that's, you know, that was just normal. In the 70s, 80s, communist soldiers smile to you, salute to you, and with gun. You know, it's very different um, idea now, you know, you think of soldiers these days, you know. Uh, so they were just a kind of, you know, gatekeeper. And then you walked in, there's streets, different streets, three streets. There's shops, candy shops, there's animal. There were, of course, different houses. And we, we shared our bathroom, toilet, lots of places we, we shared. And then but we have our we had our own kitchen and a bedroom. And I knew every every kid there. I knew all the families. We all went to the same school and the parents would work in the same place, in the same factory. So it looked the same from the outside. But, but once you enter those company yard you know, this kind of very complicated social landscape, if you could ever understand. And I think I was 
very baffled or felt very alienated or being looking down when I, you know, been you know taken to live there with my parents when I was seven or eight. I found very, you know, there's there's certain kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say prejudice, but I was certainly this kind of wild street kid, didn't know anything, you know, looked awful, ugly, or you know, looked just pure peasant. So it wasn't great to start with, but then later on, there's something. There was something, of course, you know, much better than village life. Because you could get educated, is it, or was there, what what made it better for you? I guess compare with the factory town, you know, compare you know between a factory town and a very brutal fishing village. You you so much less violence or violent cases, you know, just in front of your eyes, and that is very big deal, you know. I I heard less cries or less screaming in that factory town and in that compound yard, even though it's still you know it's still going on, you know somewhere every day but uh, when I was very young in the fishing village with my grandparents you know screaming crying I think the violence was much vivid or much kind of present every day I think for a child it's very it's not like what you say trauma or oh you know first maybe you know you you traumatized by all the violence in the village but then you got you got numbed by by its phenomenon but when I moved to that factory town where my, my parents lived, you know, there's certain civilization, you know, a bit better or much better. And everyone's engaged with with school or their work. You know, I think there's there's a purpose. You know, that's a new generation compared with a village old generation. You know, there's hope, purpose and engagement in the, in the society. Uh, which I really value later on. Although you, you hadn't known your parents up to this point, and the, and the transition, understandably, wasn't easy because I mean, relations between you and especially your mother were, were strained. What, what made that relationship so difficult? Oh, I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, because my mother didn't raise me in the very beginning, and I came to live with her when I was seven and a half, and also, I never really spent time with her, even after I came to, to live with her, because she was full-time factory worker. You know, early morning she disappeared. She had to be in the factory. You know, stood there all day long, work, in the silk factory. And then at night she had her own work to do. You know, she was in this revolutionary theater production. You know, every late night she had to be there to do her thing. So, you know, as a kid, you never see your parents anyway. So there's very little emotional contact between me and my mother and my father. So... And you also discovered you an older brother. Exactly, yeah. That your parents had kept. Yeah. You know, like most of Chinese people grew up in the 70s, 80s, Exactly everyone had a full-time factory working parents. They never saw their parents. They grew up with their grandparents. Uh, whether you were given away or you or not, you know, it's all very similar. 70s, 80s, how we lived through. And I think all quite hard compared with some other life in some other countries. Your father, whose parents you'd lived with as a young child, was born in, in 1931. He was an artist and a teacher, but, but he was fired from his job and assigned to a labor camp in the first political purge on, under Mao. Why? What was happening then? My father was a um, state painter, so he's supposed to paint all the posters the government work unit would what you know require him to do you know paint you know revolutionary posters you know soldiers or long march or you know any revolutionary scenes he should paint but i think he didn't like what he was asked to do and i think he detested and also he he criticized you know just before the cultural revolution started and during the cultural revolution what was wrong from the top government and he he wrote about all these things. So of course, he was one of the you know in Chinese we say du cao, the poisoning flower, poison poisonous grass. You know, so he was picked out 
and put in the labor camp. For, for more than 15 years? Yeah. He was actually, he was in the labor camp before Cultural Revolution started, because in 1957, you know, that's nearly 10 years before the Cultural Revolution, he was still very young, but he was already being punished, 1957. He was already in the labor camp. And then, you know, some years later, when the Cultural Revolution started, you know, he was just continued to be punished. Your parents got together in unlikely circumstances, what, what, they, what they call in Hollywood a, a meet-cute. Can you tell me what happened? Well, I think, the, interesting, you know, when I wrote about my family and I also, I was thinking about the way I write about love, you know, in other, you know, my fiction or non-fiction work. The way I understand love is, I think it's, I always find it very difficult to write it about that subject because I I refuse to be sentimental, you know, or write about obvious obvious things, and um and I wonder, you know, my parents' story, you know, how they met, how they got married, was, you know, one of the first thing made me think, what is love, or is there any such thing called love, or a deep friendship, because in their case, like my mother was a very young red guard, you know, whose job was in the 60s, 70s, was to find those so-called intellectual bourgeoisies, you know, to punish them with other red guards under the instruction, you know, from under the Mao's ideology. So that that was her role, you know, before and after the factory work. And my mother, uh, my father was exactly one of those intellectual bourgeoisie who, who was a painter who fancied to paint something he shouldn't paint. Um, and uh, they met on one of those kind of public denunciation. You know, the the intellectual bourgeoisie has, has they all have to they all had to kneel on the stage to confess. You know, the crimes they did, just merely writing a poem or or paint a painting without peasant soldiers in, which is you know exactly the case of my father. And um, my mother jumped on the stage. You know, with other red red guard. Uh, kicked him and the kind of you know it's kind of you know I, I hated to say you know it's kind of like dramatic Hollywood film but but I think lots of um, if you ask lots of Chinese from that time they would tell you very similar stories you know how they met or how people meet each other um, really were, I mean the, oh yeah but just you know if, if it's very ideological you know that time so I but, think but, love is pure spiritual or a sort of devotion to big ideas. It's nothing to do with personal feeling at that time. What was your relationship with your father like? I always had a very strong connection with my father, you know. But what I really got from my father was his very artistic spirit and this kind of idiotic devotion to to imaginative world, which, you know, which made me very curious about art and painting because he would never want to stay in the house, you know, and then you thought, well, you know, a cold father, but but you know where he, he went after eating lunch or eating dinner, you know, he walked to his painting studio, you know, he would be completely immersed in his painting and forgetting everything. And of course, I would always walk to his painting studio, you know, carrying some food, you know, my mother would give me or I would bring some, I would brew some tea, you know, something for him. And then I would look at the way he paint or sometimes he, he would read you know, some books and read out aloud. Um, I think it's a world is completely different from this domestic misery I had witnessed, you know, from my mother and my grandmother. And I remember as a, as a woman, later on when I was 20-something or 30-something, I always hated the domestic life. I mean, even now, you know, I'm 40. I still, you know, I, I know I'm quite a snobbish person, but I dislike domestic life so much. But, uh, you know, when I look at my, my father's life at that time, he, he wanted to make sure he, he didn't want to stay in that house where my mother was a boss because then he would be just, you know, one of the furnitures in the house or, you know, end up 
doing the you know meaningless repetitive domestic work that was very interesting or important for me hi i'm caitlin prest and i am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called asking for it asking for it is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Xiaolu Guo, when you were about 20, you won a place at the Beijing Film Academy. And prior to that, the only movies you'd seen were those that came to your local cinema in Wenling, war dramas or martial arts movies. What was it like to enter that world of film studies in Beijing? Absolutely. I think it was really, you know, I think it used very commercial, techy, you know, words. I say, okay, my dream came true. You know, I was able to go to very good art school, you know, Beijing Film Academy when I was 20 and finally left my provincial life which I had such, um, I think, difficult childhood and, and a teenage life. So I was alone in, in big city Beijing, and I, I wanted to become an artist. And uh, and I just, um, I was desperate. I think wanted to learn everything, to read every single book, watch every single classical film I should, you know, I should know, and to understand the culture and history behind those films. And the books, but but I was thinking, you know, up to this point, most of your creative work had been done with 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 written language. You'd written poetry and stories, and and you said everyone asked you why film, and so I can't help doing the same. I mean, why that medium for your creative outlet? Exactly, I think I was very cautious. You know, I finally got the opportunity. You know, I I grew up. I could go to university. My you know. I was good in the school, but I need to be careful. What should I learn? I don't want to learn anything just, you know, just like that. And I knew I could write some stuff, you know, because I was published very young as a teenager, you know, poetry, short stories. So I thought maybe I don't need to study literature, but I would study something much more advanced. But I think it's a visual world, which is so instant compared with, you know, literature, you know, you had to read through every every word to understand, you know, what's in the book. But watch a film with story or without story, it's a complete instant impact. And uh, in the 1990s, I think I watched some thousands French film, you know, American film from early time, 20s, 30s, German cinema from 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I was completely mesmerized by, really by, I would just say, you know, European cinema, especially 50s, 60s cinema. Because at that time, lots of writers was making film, you know, like, you know, say Margaret Duras or Jean-Luc Godard at that time. And I just got hooked. One of, one of the films you watched repeatedly at, at the Beijing Film Academy was uh, Jean-Luc Godard's La Chinoise, or I guess the Chinese woman. Why was it important for you and your fellow students to see this? Was it because it was La Chinoise? I mean, was it the word itself? I mean, it, because, you know, Beijing Film Academy was, I think, very much modeled after La Femis, you know, the film school in Paris. So, of course, you know, the Jean-Luc Godard was important. And, of course, you know, Moscow Film School was, was a model at that time for us, too. But immediately, you know, authors like Godard, we had to watch all his films. And of course, you know, what? There's a film called La Chinoise. How dare a Western artist could do that? You know, so of course we watch. And uh, we, of course, you can imagine it's very strange for Chinese to see those kind of film, you know, from Western perspective about China and as a cultural revolution. Because for us, the cultural revolution is such a bloody, miserable, sorrowful experience. And it's, you know, you you couldn't even speak about it, even now. And, you know, in, in Godard's film, La Chinoise was just a kind of this fashionable, you know, slogan-driven, you know, pop art, really, you know, a sequence of, sequence of pop art. Um, I think it's very alien, interesting, but strange for me to, to sit through. 
and of course I thought about well, my father's life in the labor camp and uh, you know how my family you know had been such a communist you know believer you know the whole the whole ideology in my family so I wanted to make comment on Godard's Lashinawas but I only found out you know, I, I found a way later when I came to the UK, I went to the UK's National Film School and um, I thought I would write a script as kind of reverse, <laughs> reverse journey of Lashnawas by Goddard. So I wrote it and then later on, you know, many, many years later, I made a film based on that idea. Yeah, you made a film called She a Chinese, and you said it's a kind of homage to to Godard's La Chinoise. It's it's about a, a young Chinese woman and her lonely wanderings from from rural China eventually to London. What's her journey about? Oh, that was a film very much like um, you know, really coming of age, a youth. You know, a kind of. I mean, I don't want to be silly or pretentious but it is i think it's a very existentialist way to look at a young person who you know kind of discard her identities you know so-called social identities just to be completely naked and you know use a very you know silly word brave you know she she didn't want to be a factory worker she didn't want to be married become a married woman she didn't want to be this and that which you know always imposed on you if you're a young person, you know. I didn't want to be a university student. She just leave. You know, each time she chose to leave her supposed identity. And she just uh, kind of, you know, move forward in her naked youth, you know, sexually, emotionally, and socially. And it's it's a really film about that kind of very existentialist way of being. I mean, I... I'm very interested in that kind of identity, which is kind of throw away the supposed identities and just to be yourself. Xiaolu Guo, in, in your most recent novel, I Am China, there's an ongoing debate about art and politics. Uh, one character, a punk musician, believes that all art is political expression. His lover wants or would like to think that she could be apolitical. C- can you elaborate a bit on that argument? Mm, yes. I see so many women, I mean, including my mother and my generation, women and my grandparents, you know, my grandmother's generation, women are consumed by the practical problems or practicality of their life that either they kill their imagination, you know, and surrender to very kind of tedious domestic lifestyle, or they you know, they don't grow their imaginative world or they don't go into that imaginative world and they just live in the materialistic, you know, limitation because I think that's because the history gave women that position, you know, to be mother, to be domestic, to be as wife, to look after family, you know, to wash dishes, you know, to cook. And even now, you know, see, every day I see how some women, <laughs> I mean, not only women, of course, you know, men too, you know, we are so practical, especially, you know, lots of office people, you know, we, we have to be so practical that we no longer read beautiful novels, we no longer watch beautiful films, we no longer do imaginative, creative things, even though we said we did, but we don't. We don't engage in any creativity, you know. I really, I detest that. Um, and of course, because that that phenomenon is much, you know, stronger in in women's life, and uh, also you know when you have children, when you have family to look after, you know, you surrender to complete practicality. And in in my last novel, I'm China, I I get that woman character to say those lines, and I wish I said more in that book, in that novel, you know, um, but I didn't. I I think in I'm China. The girl was a poet, you know, a, a not a practical person, but she she suggests, you know, life is bigger than art, when especially when art is being very political and very ideological. And she suggests there's there's a much bigger world beyond political and other ideological practice. 
It's it's interesting because the 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 male character and the female character are debating about how political art should be. But in the end, the woman becomes a kind of political artist with her performances of slam poetry. What what changes for her? Mm, I think in, in that novel, I'm trying to... The girl character would never become martyr. And then the man artist become martyr. So he would die for his belief, but she wouldn't. I mean, of course, as an author, I dare not to say, oh, you know, die for your belief is actually quite, it could be quite superficial, you know, even though death is the biggest thing in your life. But but really, you know, are we human merely or only political being? And I I was, I think I was quite a, a political product. Um, but not someone who wanted to be a martyr. No way, yeah, no way. So I do think in the end that the girl character suggests the idea of continuity of human life. But the man style, the choice, was not sustainable, of course, you know, in that story. Since he advocates revolutionary change, I would feel I should ask you about what about, do you see any possibility for revolutionary change in China or, or even artistic expression in China today? I mean, how much freedom do artists have now compared to when you lived there? Mm. I think it's quite amazing, you know, what, what Chinese artists managed to do, you know, even though there's severe censorship system going on. But I never think the creativity would be totally swollen by censorship. But I always say the case in the, in the Soviet time, all these amazing, you know, Russian writers, somehow from Soviet time I loved, you know, Boris Pasternak, for example, those books, Master Margarita was my you know, is still my favorite. Hmm. Bulgakov. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, Bulgakov. Yeah, when I mentioned Boris Pasternak, yeah, I mean, Dr. Chivakov, yeah, and Anna Bulgakov. So they were in that very rigid Soviet system, but they wrote amazing, you know, masterpiece. So it's not logical, you know, from common sense, you know, how could an artist living in a very rigid ideological world can produce real masterpiece, but they do, and everyone did. So I don't think that's, you know, completely, as a, as we thought, you know, the art is completely damaged or hinged by censorship or ideological oppression or suppression. I think people find ways to express, and actually sometimes very interesting, very unique work from a quite oppressed system, because their expression perhaps are much more genuine than people in, live in a very commercial or free world. You know, if an artist has to risk their life to, to write, publish their work, then they will write a rather authentic thing than someone living in a the, in the completely free, so-called free world. Everything's possible. Although I guess what we uh, in the West are... Uh, cognizant of is the experience of someone like Ai Weiwei or other artists who've been jailed or uh, repressed. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Xiaolu Guo, as you were saying, you've lived in the West for almost 20 years now, and you first went to, to Britain on a, on a scholarship to study film. What did you hope to find in the West? So I left China when I was... Uh, I can't remember, I was nearly 30 and it was 2002 or 2003. I was sort of fed up or a bit bored with <laughs> with that 10 years Beijing life, which I was just writing TV soaps. And I managed to publish something, you know, some books, a few novels, but I was never really truly finding my way to express as a filmmaker, as a writer. So I... I think my impatience just drove me out. And I said, well, everybody in China was doing this secondhand Western product, you know, by writing their book look like Western book or making film like Western film. You know, why don't I just go to the West to discover by myself? And I just wanted to find my language or as writer, as a filmmaker, to somehow to 
to be more clear what I really wanted to do in my life. You know, of course, I can answer with very big word freedom. I'm looking for freedom. But was I, you know, what, you know, those are just a kind of intellectual vocabulary, you know, looking for freedom. But you shared some of the same feelings of loneliness and isolation that the characters in your novels and, and films experience. How difficult was it for you? Were you ever tempted to, to pack it in and, and go back to the familiarity of China? Yes. Um, I mean, when I lived in China, I always felt lonely. You know, it's a, maybe it's not the same loneliness. Or when I came to the West, of course, it's much more acute loneliness physically and emotionally. But I was always a lonely person. I mean, imagine a young teenager already wrote her books, poetry, all that. You know, she must be or he must be a lonely person. Because literature is, uh, it's really, um, I mean, in a negative sense, literature is, you know, is a protective house which prison you or stop you to go out to live a real life physically. You know, of course, we can say positive things about literature, but I always wanted to point out that side. And I always discovered very happy people barely write anything. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should write less. But anyway, when I came to the West, of course, I, you know, for years in London, I found it so difficult to, to really become, you know, a part of this society. And I always somehow appreciate people who went to a very, you know, faraway culture to, you know, to live in a very different culture and understood my kind of acute sense of alienation or this kind of, um, you know, loss of my original identity. But when you'd been living in the UK for about 10 years, you, your mother phoned out of the blue to say that she and your father were coming to visit. And you decided to film their visit when they came. And how did that affect how you related to them? Yeah, I thought I would have uh, you know a free Western life away from my Chinese past. I didn't want them to know me, you know, how I live, you know. But then they said, oh, we're going to come to see you. And then I thought, how could I bear their visit? And which means their judgment on my new life, which I built with all my force. You know, I thought the only way to cope my parents' visit from China is to either, either I just document their daily life you know, with a camera or I, you know, we had to kill each other, really. Um, <laughs> It was heavy, I mean, because culturally, emotionally, I think me and my parents were opposite, and especially between me and my mother. The, the enemy ship is so deep, the gap between us. And I, you know, now fast really want to reconcile or have ability to, to reconcile, to be honest. Um, so luckily, you know, I'm a cold-hearted artist, so I just took the camera and I filmed them. I think that was really effective way to protect the personal me. You know, I was no longer personal with them. I was sort of a filmmaker who was examining them as a, as characters or as some kind of strange animals, rather than you know my own parents. And I think that really that made sense, and they didn't see the difference either. Not long after your parents' visit, uh, you began a relationship with an Australian man with whom you now have a young daughter. And when, when she was still an infant, you went back to China. At, at, at this point, your father had died of cancer, your mother was ill. There's a feeling of dread for you in this idea of returning. But what was it like for you when you actually got there? I think that was my last attempt to to fulfill you know, so-called human being, daughter's duty to present my newborn to my parents before they die. You know, I said this, you know, I don't mean cold-hearted, but I, I just refuse to be sentimental and moralistic about the whole thing, you know. People will say, what? You don't show your parents your new your newborn or that? And I think, so? Yeah? Okay, should I? Why should I live in those um, costume? You know, for me, those... At the costumes devoid of the authentic emotion, you know, when you have very difficult relation with them, you know, and I think we all know, you know, those those codes, you know, codes and conducts in the family. So I was cynical, but then I thought, okay, they're gonna die soon because they had cancer. So so I I just made my last effort 
And plus, I knew I were right about that trip. Selfishly, you're either gonna you're either gonna film it or write about it. Exactly, you know, I (laughs) have to save your life, right? (laughs) Exactly, you know, and I think I don't have shrink or psychoanalyst to see. So, I each each of my you know kind of significant trip, I would just write my diary, you know, to record it. And you know, I think that really saved me. So, I wrote on a plane. I remember, I was carrying my newborn, two or three month old all the way back to China. And then I saw my mother who was, was really sick. Uh, she had a stomach cancer then. And she saw the newborn and she didn't really react because she suffered from her own illness. And as she was going, she was leaving, you know, really. And you see her kind of just surrender to the disease. And she's just uh, quite detached from my my new identity as, as a young mother, which is quite true. She's against. Is not sentimental person at all. You know, that's only you know similarity we we shared. Um, then she died three months later, and then because my father died earlier, a year or two years earlier, and I wrote about that freedom, that real liberation. You know, emotionally I felt so liberated without living in my role, as I used that word, you know, costume, you know, I don't want to live in that costume as a woman, as a daughter, as a Chinese, you know, the meaning being completely abandoned. So it was really, you know, that that I call freedom of my role. You know, I could decide how how I live my life and also to raise my child without completely being influenced by by my parents' generation. Well, as you say, I was my own home now. Yes. What does that mean for you? Because um, all my life was looking for a real home, you know, especially after I left China. I moved around so much in Europe, then moved back to living in London. And now between London and Berlin, not because I could live like that, because I was constantly, I think, feeling awkward, feeling uncomfortable to say this is going to be my country I would become that nationality you know own that passport and it's going to be my home I don't I never felt comfortable and I think you know I don't want to be techy or sounds a bit awful but I think as a child when you have a child you your your own desire disappeared quite a bit you know it's all about to, how to look after a vulnerable little life to make home for her and that comfort would become your own comfort too you know it's it's completely different view on life it's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk to you thank you very much thank you Zhao Lu Guo in London, England. Nine Continents, A Memoir in and Out of China is published in paperback by Grove Press her novel I Am China is available in paperback from Anchor Books Zhao Lu Guo's latest memoir is titled Radical, A Life of My Own. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson, with thanks to Katie Swales and Melissa Gismondi. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Canadian poet, essayist, Greek and Latin scholar and librettist Anne Carson. The author of Autobiography of Red and its sequel, Red Dock, is the only poet who's won the Griffin Poetry Prize twice. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.